Hello friends. Before we start the show, I want to thank Verger CBD products. Verger CBD offers only the highest quality CBD products for relaxation, rejuvenation, and concentration. In addition to topicals, edibles, and flower, Verger has a wide variety of skincare products and CBD for your pets as well. Check them out on Facebook or on their website at vergercbd.com. That's Verger, V-E-R-D-U-R-E-C-B-D.com. Also, be sure to take advantage of a special 10% off for our listeners with promo code UNKNOWN10 at checkout. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who can pick oranges from an apple tree and make the best lemonade you've ever tasted, Mike <laughs> Vandebogart. Thanks, Joe, and how's it going, everybody out there? I uh, hope everyone's surviving the ongoing pandemic. Uh, no new announcements for you guys this, uh, this month, but I know Joe is working on getting some new hats ordered, so... Yeah, it's uh, going a little bit slower. That. It's going a little bit slower with all the stuff. It's hard to get through. So, yeah, we'll so keep, we'll keep pushing through, and uh, hopefully, we'll have them released soon. Yeah, so uh, just keep checking our Facebook page. We have our store on there. We still do have some hats and stickers for sale. If you want to help the show out, uh, feel free to buy a few of those. I always say nothing looks better on the back of a nice car than a giant bumper sticker. So, absolutely, especially <laughs> one of ours. Yes. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. April 10th, 1952, two-year-old Keith Parkins was playing with his older brothers on a cattle ranch in Ritter, Oregon. While playing near a barn on the property, his older brothers headed back to their house for lunch, leaving Keith at the barn. When his mother realized he hadn't returned with his brothers, they headed for the barn to find him. To their shock, Keith had vanished without a trace. Join us this week as we discuss the strange disappearance and discovery of Keith Parkins and the bizarre facts that surround this case. Ritter, Oregon, sits about 273 miles southeast of Portland, Oregon, near the Umatilla National Forest. The elevation of Ritter is about 2,549 feet, so it's not too high above sea level relative Mm -hmm. to the area around it. 
It is an unincorporated town, which, Mike, do you know what that means? Um, very few people live there. <laughs> well, that is the case, but so few people live there that there is no post office. Oh, yeah. To be you incorporated, know, there has to be a post office in your town. I did not know that, but I did read that at one point, Ritter did have a post office, but then they lost it. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. So the cl- <laughs> the climate of Ritter, uh, its coldest months are December and January, as you'd expect when the nighttime temperatures average about 28 degrees Fahrenheit. The warmest months are July and August, where the daytime temps reach about 88 Fahrenheit. So very typical northwestern atmosphere. Dry throughout most of the year, not too much going on. And the terrain in the Umatilla National Forest is the Blue Mountains of Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington and cover an area of 1.4 million acres. Some interesting facts about the forest. Uh, the explorers Lewis and Clark passed through the area in 1805. And thousands of emigrants would later follow the Oregon Trail west, with many of them remaining in the Blue Mountain region. Everybody who played Oregon Trail growing up, if you died and never made it to the end, this is where you would have gone. Yep, this is this is this is where you win if you didn't dive dysentery on the way. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in 1851, gold was discovered in the region, and by the end of the gold boom, over 10 million dollars in gold and silver were mined from the area. So that's 10 million dollars in 1851. So that's yeah. a significant uh, section of the area where the people actually made money. Mm-hmm. Uh, remnants of the gold boom are still visible today in the national forest there are even some active claims still getting mined so there's a lot of gold in this area yeah and one thing um to mention about the climate of the area is uh, like joe said it's typically pretty dry but actually 2019 was one of the wettest years they had on record oh wow yeah they had almost uh, 42 inches of rain and 205 inches of snow which if you go and look at their averages is way 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 above what they normally average in the area so um yeah they had a really wet year uh, and no, I, no reason why that I could read, but, uh, just interesting. That's awesome. That's a lot of snow. <laughs> yeah. That's a ton of snow. <laughs> ton. Um, so just, to uh, give you an idea of the animals that are in the area, moose, bighorn sheep, black bear, mountain goats, mule deer, white-tailed deer, timber wolves, cougars, coyotes. Uh, so a lot of big game mm-hmm. and we don't see that in a lot of the areas we follow, but out there it's healthy, lush. Lots of vegetation, so you get some bigger game. And definitely, uh, you know, a couple animals that I would worry about if I had small children hiking with oh, me. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, obviously, the wolves and, and cougars. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, black bears are, you know, I'm less uh, worried about a black bear versus a grizzly, but they're still a large predatory animal. Especially if you're young and mm-hmm. a young child out by yourself. Yeah. Uh, so 20 for, 20% of the forest is actually designated as a wilderness zone. And area is generally rugged and mountainous. The peaks in the area approaching 9,000 feet. So you don't really have stuff going above tree line, but you still have altitude as a factor. So, and I, I just want to, people might be wondering why we're talking about this national forest when the case happened in Ritter. Ritter is private property, but it's near this forest. So this this forest is a good representation of the terrain and climate that, keith would have encountered in ritter yeah, and it, it's, it gives you an idea and i think people could imagine just they've always seen pictures of like lush oregon forests yeah so i mean that's kind of what it, what it like comes to mind when i think of it as far as exposure goes with areas that are approaching nine thousand feet in some of the areas and possibly obviously especially in 2019 heavy rain and snow 
Uh, exposure is definitely a potential risk or concern in that area. And lack of shelter, I don't know. With much of the area is designated wilderness and it's all below tree line, you're not going to run into like actual built shelters, but it's not like you're completely exposed all the time. Not all the so, time. I did look up, I, you know, obviously tree line changes kind of depending on the, where you are. If you're oh, like Colorado if there's no or, trees just growing. Yeah. You know, so in, the, yeah, in the Oregon area, you kind of start to see trees disappear around the 6,500 to 7,000 feet range. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So depending on what elevation you're at, you may be above the tree line. So, oh, wow. And that does change. I know in Colorado, it's much higher. Yeah. It's like almost 11,000 feet in the Rockies. Yeah. And even um, when we were in uh, Mount Rainier, it was near 9,000 feet was the tree line there. So it, it really varies depending on where you're at. That's crazy. I kind of want to know. I want to know more about that. I want to learn about that when we get off of here to find out what, because that's significant difference. Like, yeah. Because there's like, you, when you get up to like 10,500 feet in Colorado, mm -hmm. you start getting those, like the full growth of the tree is like three feet tall. You get yeah. like those little, and that's as big as they'll get. But that's like 3,000 feet higher up than this is. I imagine it has to do probably something with the amount of rain they get. Um, rain or if it's like battered with wind and something just can't stay up at that altitude, maybe. I know this area in Oregon is drier. So I have a feeling that probably plays a role in where the tree line ends. I know Colorado, you know, gets a lot more precipitation. <laughs> oh, Mike, I have a theory that the Russians might be happy with. I wonder if they're getting those mountain hurricanes up there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is an episode for a, uh, or a topic for another episode. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? For those of you that think I'm crazy, I'm not. It's the Russian government that's crazy. When we did our Dyatlov Pass episode, one of the theories mentioned as to why the group went missing was that a hurricane got them in the mountains. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so. so if you want to hear some crazy theories, yes. including uh, mountain hurricanes, listen to our Dyatlov uh, episode. And that is how you plug your own podcast in your own podcast episode. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll move on so we can get going. So difficulty in general it's a heavily wooded alpine and mountainous area. Uh, so it's going to be typically high if you're out hiking, especially because when it's designated wilderness, that means unmanaged, basically. It's kind of yep. like Bureau of Land Management stuff. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. There might be some trails, but you're like more game trails or trails that people are making, but there's no rangers. There's none of that stuff going on like you'd see at a national park. I looked up the trails in the national forest we're talking about, and most of the trails were moderate to high levels of difficulty. You can just picture a lot of ups and downs. The trails are probably not well-maintained, so kind of rugged. Um, like we said, not a lot of shelters. So it's it's not, you know, it's not going to be one of your more major national parks where you where there's well-defined flat trails that you can hike. Yeah, you'll end up at a nice place where they're probably selling some water and food and all yeah. that. Other There's no <laughs> services here. It's yeah. it's raw wilderness, so. Yep. All right, so let's talk about Keith Parkins. When Keith disappeared, he's two and a half, and his age now, he's in his mid-60s. So back then, body, height, weight, everything, typical two-year-old. Yeah. So he was last seen at the time of his disappearance in a hat, coat, and shoes. And personality, according to his mom at the time of his disappearance, he was a very happy child. He didn't have any medical issues. He had very little experience in the wilderness other than he lived in this heavily wooded area 
uh, kind of like the farm type suburb area. So he's not a city boy. So he's used to the outdoors type stuff, but he's a two-year-old. So it's not going to, it's not going to be the, he doesn't know what he's doing out there. The main actors in this story are going to be Adina, which is Keith's mom, Alan, which is Keith's father. And then we have some information from Les Stroud, who we've talked about him a couple times in this podcast. He's a survival expert that talks about these issues a lot. We'll talk about some of the comments he made about this case and missing people in general at the end of this episode. But he brings up a lot of really interesting kind of strange things that are going on. No, what I really like about doing this show is even though there's some repetitive stuff, I really feel like in each case, we I kind of learn something in each case. I'll, I'll, I'll hear something that makes me think differently about my previously held beliefs about search and rescue, for say, or, or how what can happen to people out there. So I really enjoy doing this stuff and, and continually hearing from people like Les. So let's go into the timeline, man. The timeline here, and I just want to let everyone know that um, this episode obviously is going to be a shorter episode. The timeline's pretty thin. Uh, it was a long time ago, and I... Um, I'm, I won't spoil what happens at the end, but uh, it's more about what happened in between in the middle of the story that is really the mysterious part about this. So obviously we said it all started on April 10th, 1952. So, you know, today is April 15th. So, you know, close to this time period around Easter, it was 12 p.m. lunchtime and Edna or Edna. I probably got that wrong. Alan, Keith, and his two older brothers were visiting their grandparents in Ritter, Oregon. They were visiting a property that they described as a cattle ranch. This whole area around Ritter is kind of cattle country. That's what they described it as. Edna described the conditions the day uh, Keith went missing. It was cold with patches of snow on the ground. So I'm guessing probably in the 30s, you know, cold, you know, kind of a lot like today was here in Milwaukee. It's around lunchtime. Keith and his old older brothers had gone to a barn on the property to see a new calf that had just been born. And their mother, you know, called out to them, like, hey, lunch is ready. So the two older boys he- headed back to the house for lunch. And when they got there, Keith's mom's like, all right, where's Keith? And they're like, oh, he went around the barn. And so she's like, all right, well, let's go get him. They all walk back to the barn and to their shock, Keith's gone without a trace. So... I'm guessing maybe 10, 15 minutes went by between the point when Keith's brothers saw him and the time that he was gone. So not a lot of time passed in between that. You We fast forward to the afternoon on the 10th. So realizing Keith was gone, a search started within hours of his disappearance. So we're not talking a, a, a big search and rescue operation. Those really didn't happen yet in 1952. And Keith's mother even noted that it wasn't organized like a modern search and rescue, but the initial people searching knew what they were doing. Well, and I'm wondering too, like back then on a farm type setting, I'm guessing the kids kind of wandered a lot, you know? And so maybe they weren't thinking it was as like, you know, still scary. You have a two and a half year old kid can wander a little bit, can kind of move around his own. It'll make you nervous, but you're probably not thinking the worst right off the bat. Yeah. Until it starts getting later and later. And uh, pictures from this area, you it, you know, it's a cattle ranch, so it's pretty open. You know, if you have a cattle ranch, you need open land for the cattle to graze. So it's not like a thick forest and he wandered 10 feet away from the barn and just vanished. I mean, it's wide open plains that they were on. 
So it's it's strange that he would wander off like that away from his brothers. He didn't have a, a you know a handicap or any mental issues. So there's there's already a question of why did he wander off? Like the mother noted, people started searching right away. This wasn't what we would consider a modern search and rescue operation. Uh, I'm sure initially it was just the parents, the brothers, and anyone else, you know, grandparents, probably anyone around the cattle ranch, cat, you know, farmhands, whoever was there probably just started looking around. Yeah. And she said people started in a line of people spread out within distance, like far enough, but they could still hear each other. And then they just kind of started walking. You know, we're not talking canine units or aerial units or anything like that. You're just, you got some people on the ground far enough away that they can cover a decent space of ground, but they can still hear each other. Yeah. Basic friends and family just walking the straight line and making sure they don't miss anything. Yeah. So in the mother noted that at the peak of the search, probably by evening, there was over 200 people in the field searching for Keith. Oh, wow. That's all. So they must have like phoned in like the neighbors and stuff too. Yeah. I'm sure they probably, a lot of people probably came out there and started searching. So a large group of people searching, not what we would consider a modern search and rescue operation, but Nonetheless, they had a lot of people on the ground looking, mm-hmm. and the search went through the night into the next morning. So the first, I would say, breakthrough in the search came that evening of the 10th. At some point around three miles from where Keith was initially last seen, searchers found footprints that were kind of going through a herd of cattle. He Keith had gotten three miles away somehow, and he for some reason made tracks in that one spot. Maybe it was more wet where the cattle were walking. And so they, they saw just, you know, a couple feet of tracks, but that was it outside of those tracks. There were no other clues about what happened to Keith. And he obviously wasn't in the area. Wow. Yeah. Kind of strange. <laughs> Do they, so, but they like, as I said, like you don't know much about the timeline. They don't know what the time was that this occurred in like uh the tracks were found in the evening they don't have a specific time we we do have a a total elapsed time of disappearance which i I, i'll get into in a minute but yeah we don't have any we we know he went missing around noon and we know the tracks were found in the evening um on the 10th outside of that we don't have a lot of other information on this specific detail, nothing like some of the cases we do that are more recent. <laughs> sure. And I, I'm sure they're assuming they're his tracks. They're probably really tiny or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, they assume they're his tracks. So, all right, flash for, uh, fast forward to April 11th, uh, around 7 a.m. on the next day, a searcher found Keith alive in Skull Canyon, roughly 12 miles from where he was last seen. He was. Whoa. Yeah. So he was found face down in the snow with his hat and coat beside him. His body uh, was stiff from the cold and he couldn't move. Uh, His face had also been scratched up pretty bad, according to his mother. And his clothing was also ripped from what they assumed he was trying to climb through barbed wire fencing. And he was flown to the nearby hospital via private plane and eventually made a full recovery. So, oh, my God. Yeah, it's incredibly bizarre. And it's a miracle. Yeah. So like you think about like an adult face down in the snow for too long, you're going to get hypothermia. Holy cow. Yeah. So if you think about this, you've got a two and a half year old. 
it's cold enough where there's snow on the ground. He is by himself, uh, you know, survived through the night and somehow managed to travel 12 miles in rugged terrain through barbed wire fence and did that all in 19 hours. I mean, that that doesn't seem possible. You have yeah. young kids. Could they could one of your kids do that? <laughs> well, it's I, I, I know I can't imagine <laughs> like they would just sit down like they like I can't imagine what would keep them moving, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Right. Like, you, especially with the searchers. I mean, they'd be crying like, yeah, like all like, geez, that's crazy. So, yeah. And this is an unusual case for us to do because he was found alive. Um, usually our cases, there's usually never any trace found. But I, I wanted to do this case just because it was so bizarre, the ca- the facts surrounding the case. So, Oh, I think our podcast has evolved into interesting cases, not necessarily just those, because it's, I, I mean, this thing started because it's just fun stuff we wanted yeah. to do. And I don't think that's ever going to change. So if we decide something's fun and we want to do it, well, yep. then we're going to do it. So <laughs> uh, the things that instantly jump out at me, and there, so there weren't really any official theories on what happened to him because he was found and he made a full recovery. So they kind of, you know, just kind of moved on. I even found some old newspaper articles about it and not, none of them go into any. They just like weren't interested in figuring out like what the hell happened, how the heck it happened. Yeah. You know? So think about this. You got a two and a, two and a half year old kid who uh, I've, I saw pictures of. So they actually interviewed Keith when he was in his 60s, so recently, the last few years, and he was holding up the clothing that he was wearing at the time of his disappearance. And it's not like winter clothing. It's He had you know normal clothes and uh, overalls on and a coat and some shoes, and he had a hat with like the little earmuffs that like flipped down. That was it. And Yeah, it was like, I'm going to play outside for a little bit in cold weather, but not survive the you know, 18 hours or whatever. Somehow, yeah, somehow he walked 19 miles or 12 miles in just 19 hours through very rugged terrain. Um, I'll go into some of the the comments that uh, Les Stroud made, but he actually tried to recreate the the path that Keith would have taken. And he he said it was it was hard for a train. He's a trained survivalist and it was hard for him to do it. And he's like, well, even if he's not a trained survivalist, he's an adult, not a two-year-old. Yeah, exactly. And so how how did this little child go 12 miles in rugged terrain through the middle of the night in what I'm assuming is below freezing temperatures because there's snow on the ground? How did he do that? Why was his face all torn up? Um, his clothes were all torn up. I mean, he could have, I guess, tried to get through a barbed wire fence. Um, that's... I guess the official theory of why he was so scratched up and his clothing was scratched up, but yeah, it's, it's just a really bizarre set of set of circumstances in later on in his, his life. He, he goes on to say that he doesn't have any recollection of what happened in those 19 hours, which is strange too. Cause they asked him, the authorities asked Keith after they found him like the next day in the hospital, like, what happened to you? And he couldn't remember. He's like, I don't know what happened. And then they they Jeez. asked him, what happened to your face? And he said, a cat scratched me. But his what were his clothes? I don't know, were his clothes like ripped up or his overalls or like his pants or whatever he was wearing were like kind of torn up a bit. And 
the the police assumed that it was because he was trying to get through barbed wire fence. So, and maybe that's why his face was scratched up. But Keith, he specifically said that a cat scratched his face. So, (laughs) um, so, and he even says in the interview, he's, he was holding up his, the cap that he wore and his little earmuffs. He said, I I took it off for whatever reason. I was wearing my cap and uh, I was carrying my cap in my cap in my coat and I had that alongside of me while I was laying on the ground. He was laying in the prone position on the ground. He has, yeah, he has no recollection of what happened over that 19 hour period, which is strange. You would think, I, I would understand if you ask somebody when they're 65 what happened to you when you're two and a half and you don't remember, but you would think yeah. a two and a half year old would be able to recall what happened to him the day before, right? Well, especially if it was traumatic. Yeah. And that seems like something traumatic. Yeah, so... Or there's always the thing where they have issues where something traumatic happens and the brain blocks it out. Yeah. Yeah, so this was a a direct quote from Keith in his 60s. Someone interviewed him about the case, and he goes, No nightmares about it at all. I don't recall at all anything about it. They asked me what happened, and I told them I didn't know. I didn't know what happened when they asked. I had quite a few scratches on my face and hands. Someone asked me how I got those, and I told them a cat had scratched me. So I had no recollection of what happened to me. So that was a direct quote from Keith as an adult. <laughs> and uh, just a bizarre case. I, You know, instantly in my head I'm, I'm thinking about, all right, animal attack, rule that out. They found him. Um, if a cougar would have attacked him, a cougar probably would have killed him. Do they have any pictures of the site where they found him face down in the snow? It. Uh, I've seen pictures of it. It it looks like kind of just like an open, like flat, uh, plain area, kind of in like a mountainous region. So nothing out of the ordinary. Well, I'm saying more like more like, or I guess less pictures and more to describe like. Here's what I'm getting at. Are we are we officially in our theories now? Because I have a theory. yeah. We can move the theories. Okay. Okay. Because <laughs> I didn't know if there was more information before I spout out my theory. Because there's something that I want to. My gut thing right away was. I think that's too far for him to travel on his own. That mixed with what he said. And I always, I think I said it in an earlier episode. I feel like you can always take a child's word as truth, but you have to interpret the truth because they're not capable of fully explaining the truth in a way that an adult will understand. So when he says a cat got him, my immediately thought is one of two things. One thing, something did kind of attack him and and i've never heard of this happening before so this is kind of a stretch but imagine like a cougar grabbing him and carrying him for a a while or something like by his coat or pants and then leaving him there or something or somehow over 19 hours i mean if you think about it it's a little over a half a half a mile per hour which i guess wandering yes but like i can't imagine a two-year-old Cause that would be a con uh, like a constant speed of just over or just over a half a mile an hour to do that 12 miles in 19 hours. Um, did he get that far collapse of exhaustion and an animal came along and actually like slept on him or like cuddled into him to like, not necessarily to protect him, but almost like I've seen animals try and keep themselves warm. Yeah. And maybe was clawing at him or nuzzling in like I like 
Otherwise, like how, how do you, like, how do you survive? The human body cannot do that. The only person I know of that can survive something like that is that the Iceman from the Netherlands. Right. <laughs> I forgot his, I, for, I forget his name. He has a very unique name, but like they had, they put him in freaking ice tanks in a laboratory to study because they said it's so incredible that he's Doesn't able to Doesn't he swim it. in like frozen water? Like, he climbed Everest in shorts and flip-flops. That's crazy. You're like, yeah, he can, he, they put him in a, in a tank of ice water for like several hours and he was yeah. able to maintain his body temperature at a perfect 92 point, whatever, like 92.8 the whole time. And he says it's just with meditation and breathing. Yeah. He can control his body temperature. He can make it go up and down at will. That's and they, crazy. They've studied him and there's, there's a great documentary on him. It's called like the Iceman. Yeah. Um, but like, th- there you go. They, a guy that can do it for a couple hours in ice has a documentary and he's famous. Yep. So this kid survived 19 hours through the night in ice as a two-year-old. Yes. That's just he, insane to me. Like it's either it's a legitimate miracle or like an animal kept him warm. And as they were approaching that site, it scared the animal away. So that's what I was kind of getting at. Like, was there impressions of animal footprints around him when they found him? Like, is there clues in that regard of there's no way he laid in the snow all night long and was still alive? No. So there was no, uh, in my research of the case, there was no specific details about this, the site where they found him. Um, no mention of any kind of animal tracks or any kind of struggle or anything like that. They just literally said they found him face down kind of in the prone position in, a, in snow. And you and know the, what, too, if they found him, if you can imagine, because at first I was like, come on, they didn't document it. I'm like, oh, wait, if you're approaching a two-year-old's body face on the snow, you're probably running up to it and grabbing him and just getting him out of there. Yeah, and actually um, one of the accounts of this said that the, the a searcher initially found the kid, but the Keith's father was about 100 yards behind him and just started like sprinting towards him and literally just oh God. grabbed him and picked him up and like started running him out of there. Yeah, uh, like you think it, like that's, that's what I – he probably ran faster than a human could run. Like you get that like flight or fight, but it's like your child in danger. Like not thinking about the integrity of the site. Yeah. So it's, it's just a shocking set of uh, facts surrounding this case. And like I said, I, I I don't know how a a two-year-old can go 12 miles in, you know, roughly 19 hours in rugged terrain in the middle of the night with, you know, I would say not, he's not wearing clothes appropriate for winter climate and survive just surviving the night even if he hadn't gone 12 miles i would say it would be a miracle that he survived the you know sub freezing night but he went 12 miles he was wearing clothes designed for arctic research like you still can't sleep in the snow you would need a tent and a sleeping bag like that's that's kind of that's what's crazy so it's like even if he was wearing winter clothes it's still not possible. <laughs> the other thing that is puzzling is what caused him to leave the area where he, the barn and the, the cattle area. Why, you know, yeah, and if it's wide open, like it's wide open, it's point, cattle be, like you, you can see it and make your way back. But he yeah. continued on for like, why would may, he just maybe keep following walking? an animal or something? But like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, that's the, the the scratches on his face and hands and clothing makes me feel like, uh, I mean, I don't obviously know how the, the, you know, how cougars operate with, you know, prey, but is it possible that 
a cat would have started dragging him off to a place to... That's kind of what I was thinking about the distance. Like, if something... He walked a little bit, but then, like, something was grabbing him and pulling him, like, or carrying him. Because, I mean... But a, they... a cougar's not going to drag a two-year-old for 12 miles. That's... Yeah, again, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Like, if they're going to attack, they're going to want to deal with it there. And in, when you see some of the terrain of the area, it's not like he was going 12 miles on open grassland. Were they I mean, searching constantly through the night? Yeah, they searched all the way through the night into Is the morning. Is it possible? Okay, how about this? How about this? Okay. This. <laughs> <laughs> what if a cougar did get him? Yeah. And the search party was pushing the cougar constantly the whole time, and the cougar was pulling the kid, waiting for the opportunity to basically eat it. Okay. But but like the search party kept pushing it, so it's like it's not going to abandon the prey, but it's going to keep dragging and dragging. It eventually just gave up. So maybe Keith, kid. maybe Keith walked at least the three miles to where they found his tracks. Yeah. Walked on his own, and then the rest of the way, or maybe he walked a little further at, past that, and the rest of the way uh, a cougar attacked him, and maybe that's why he doesn't have memory of what happened. Yeah, maybe, like maybe he passed out or or something or whatever but anybody listening that uh cougar experts <laughs> any cougar experts out there and we're not talking about frat guys that <laughs> go to the bars <laughs> i bit my tongue so i'm glad you said it <laughs> um if anyone listening is an expert in you know kind of big cats in the wild uh f- please comment on this episode if joe and i are totally talking out of our ass <laughs> i'm sure we are um, but if you look at all the facts, I, outside of human caused disappearance, I don't know what else could cause a two-year-old to go, you know, 12 miles in, you know, less than 24 hours. Yeah. It, it just, nothing makes sense. And to, uh, piggyback off that, I've got, uh, some quotes from Les Stroud, my favorite, favorite survival expert. Um, so he, he writes, Eight miles, that's as the crow flies. It's impossible to walk out there as a crow would fly. In the span of less than 24 hours, you'd have to believe that this two-year-old covered perhaps as many as 12 miles. And he goes, As it was, his clothing was found ripped, and we figure it's likely from barbed wire fences, either going through them or under them. And even with a full moon, you wouldn't be able to see anything going through the, the brush. So if I'm a two-year-old child and I've got to walk through this or crawl through this, I get to this time of night, I can't see Keith going anywhere. I can't go anywhere. How a two-year-old could travel the topography I'm traveling now, little shoes and it was freezing temperatures, even if he was a kid full of energy. So um, Les Stroud is, he's he obviously doesn't know how this kid would have gotten to where he was he was even basically saying that he himself being a a full-grown adult man and a survival expert who does this kind of stuff professionally (laughs) he wouldn't be able to do that in 24 hours in the middle of the night that's so gnarly so it's uh it's a puzzling case i mean it's amazing that they found him alive it's Uh, awesome i can't i can't imagine what the parents went through and how like the feeling of well, because it's the like, mom tell so many stories that they end in just tragedy. And like, it's so nice to have, like, even though it's crazy and befuddling, it's just great to have one that ends kind of happy. 
Yeah, it's it's a puzzling case. And even the parents go on to say years later after this happened that at the time they they didn't make a big deal of this at all. They didn't want to scare Keith to, you know, they didn't want to scare him of the outdoors or being alone at night or anything like that. And Keith had no recollection of what happened to him. So they just kind of let let it go. And they kind of let it go. It's bizarre. You know, if I had a kid and this happened to him, I would be. I wouldn't rest until I, like, what the hell happened to him? How did he get there? Yeah. I would not let it let it die. And they were the exact opposite. They're just like, well, we found him. Um, let's just move on. <laughs> yeah, jeez. It's a tough um, farm folk from the 50s. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was a different era, I guess. Um, yeah. It, I'll, I'll end this episode with a final quote from my favorite survival expert. Um Les Stroud uh, writes, it's the kind of baffling case that has you sit back and go, nothing that I can put my finger on in a normal set of circumstances in the wilderness makes any sense to this case whatsoever. It's something other. <laughs> yeah, that I, that's perfectly put. I, I don't know. It's almost yeah. not worth even guessing. No. So uh, just to recap, I the only two theories I can really think of is, like you said, Joe, maybe a uh, a cat attacked Keith at some point in his, you know, after the three mile point where his tracks were found and started dragging him and the search party kept pushing the cat farther out. That's why Keith ended up, you know, roughly 12 miles away with scratches on his face. And maybe the cat even kind of hunkered down at times, right? Like kind of protecting its prey. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And eventually they pushed so far, gave up. Yeah, like morning was approaching, it just yeah. ran off. Um, that, I mean, it w- I would love to have seen the area where they found him to see if there's like drag marks or, um, y- you know, any kind of struggle, like cat hair or something like that. But yeah, we'll never know. It was the fifties. They, I'm sure they, they probably just moved on because they found him alive. Yeah. Um, but that or it was human caused. But I, I just don't. I don't see that really just the terrain and I mean, it would have had to have been somebody that worked on the ranch. Yeah. And it, that'd be, it's just a weird way of where the body was and everything. It just, it wouldn't make sense to have human involvement. It's too random. Yeah. There's no pattern. No. All right. So, well, um, yeah, another little shorter episode for people to, to chew on. This one's a real strange one. Uh, I know there's a lot of, a lot of people out on the internet have done, you know, analysis on this case. It's an old one. So hopefully, hopefully we added a little different twist to it. Yeah. <laughs> My crazy cat's got him. The searchers are pushing the cat theory. I mean, what else could it be? What I else mean, could it be? It may be Bigfoot. Or, yeah, there you go. Bigfoot uh, was caring for him. You know, like how sometimes like the gorilla, <laughs> like the kids will fall in the zoo and the gorilla saves it. Yeah. Oh, so man. I don't know. Right. So, well, uh, any last words, Joe, before we, we sign no, off? No, just thanks again for tuning into the show. Uh, we appreciate all of you for listening and sharing Locations Unknown with your friends and family. Uh, be sure to like us on, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have our YouTube channel where we're posting not only our show, but Mike's always putting up some national park stuff. A lot of interesting videos about the different parks and the animals in the park, so it's always a good watch. If you'd like to support the show, please visit the Facebook store. We still have some of the older hats. Those are still around, and we're going to be ordering new ones soon. 
And you can always donate on our Patreon account by searching Locations Unknown. And leave comments and any anything about our episodes on any of the various platforms, good or bad, leave them. We, we take it all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the negative ones are sometimes hard to read, but you know what? We're... We're thick-skinned, but we like the nice ones. We like more of the nice ones, though. (laughs) Leave nice comments, unless you're really, really unhappy. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, always remember, when enjoying the beauty of nature, whether backpacking, camping, or just taking a walk, to leave no trace. Except that now you shouldn't be doing any of that, apparently. So, (laughs) thanks, and we'll see you next time. See ya.